Um, before we come to our reading, you may have looked ahead and seen me look at Daniel 11 and read it in advance. It's a weird, freaky chapter, which is quite hard to understand. Um, so I've got two things to help you. First up is this. It's a book called Fearless. It's got the whole of Daniel done for young people, and it is the best book I've read on Daniel. It's so short, so easy to read and understand, and makes really hard chapters really simple. So if you, if you want to kind of look back over Daniel and understand what's happened in it, get that book. I've got a couple of copies. If you want one, grab grab me, I'll give it to you. You can read it. It's brilliant, called Fearless. Um, the second tip is in Daniel, often like, like the plain thing's the main thing, right? So the, the big, plain, obvious thing is kind of what Daniel wants you to get out, get out of the passage. And so for today, to help you when we go through this strange chapter, um, plan to keep you grounded. Basically, God's people, Jerusalem, is in the middle of a massive war between the North Kingdom and the South Kingdom. If you get lost, get back there. Um, Katie's going to come and read the Bible to us, and Dan's going to come and proclaim God's word for us. Katie. Okay, so let's do Daniel chapter 11. So if you look at page 897 in your church Bibles, or it'll be on the, on the screen. So starting at verse 1 and all of Daniel chapter 11. And in the first year of Darius the Mede, I took my stand to support and protect him. Now then, I tell you the truth, three more kings will arise in Persia, and then a fourth who will be far richer than all the others. When he has gained power by his wealth, he will stir up everyone against the kingdom of Greece. Then a mighty king will arise, who will rule with great power and do as he pleases. After he has arisen, his empire will be broken up and parceled out towards the four winds of heaven. It will not go to his descendants nor will it have the power he exercised because his empire will be uprooted and given to others. The king of the south will become strong, but one of his commanders will become even stronger than he and will rule his own kingdom with great power. Some years after, they will become allies. The daughter of the king of the south will go to the king of the north to make an alliance, but she will not retain her power and he and his power will not last. In those days, she will be betrayed together with her royal escort and her father and the one who supported her. Someone from within her family will arise to take her place. He will attack the forces of the king of the north and enter his fortress. He will fight against them and be victorious. He will also seize their gods, their metal images and their valuable articles of silver and gold and carry them off to Egypt. For some years he will leave the king of the north alone. Then the king of the north will invade the realm of the king of the south, but will retreat to his own country. His sons will prepare for war and assemble a great army, which will sweep like an irresistible flood and carry the battle as far as his fortress. Then the king of the south will march out in a rage and fight against the king of the north. He will raise a large army, but it will be defeated. When the army is carried off, the king of the south will be filled with pride and will slaughter many thousands, yet he will not remain triumphant. For the king of the north will muster another army larger than the first, and after several years he would advance with a huge army fully equipped. In those times, many will rise against the king of the south. Those who are violent among your own people will rebel in fulfilment of the vision, but without success. Then the king of the north will come and build up siege ramps and will capture a fortified city. The forces of the south will be powerless to resist. Even their best troops will not have the strength to stand. 
The invader will do as he pleases. No one will be able to stand against him. He will establish himself in the beautiful land and will have the power to destroy it. He will determine to come with the might of his entire kingdom and will make an alliance with the king of the south. And he will give him a daughter in marriage in order to overthrow the kingdom. But his plans will not succeed or help him. Then he will turn his attention to the coastlands and will take many of them. But a commander will put an end to his insolence and will turn his insolence back on him. After this, he will turn back towards the fortresses of his own country, but will stumble and fall to be seen no more. His successor will send out a tax collector to maintain the royal splendour. In a few years, however, he will be destroyed, yet not in anger or in battle. He will be succeeded by a contemptible person who has not been given the honour of royalty. He will invade the kingdom when its people feel secure, and he will seize it through intrigue. Then an overwhelming army will be swept away before him. Both it and a prince of the covenant will be destroyed. After coming to an agreement with him, he will act deceitfully, and with only a few people he will rise to power. When the richest provinces feel secure, he will invade them, and will achieve what neither his fathers nor his forefathers did. He will distribute plunder, loot and wealth among his followers. He will plot the overthrow of fortresses, but only for a time. With a large army, he will stir up his strength and courage against the king of the south. The king of the south will wage war with a large and very powerful army, but he will not be able to stand because of the plots devised against him. Those who eat from the king's provisions will try to destroy him. His army will be swept away and many will fall in battle. The two kings, with their hearts bent on evil, will sit at the same table and lie to each other, but to no avail, because an end will still come at the appointed time. The king of the north will return to his own country with great wealth, but his heart will be set against the holy covenant. He will take action against it and then return to his own country. At the appointed time, he will invade the south again. But this time, the outcome will be different from what it was before. Ships of the western coastlands will oppose him, and he will lose heart. And then he will turn back and vent his fury against the Holy Covenant. He will return and show favour to those who forsake the Holy Covenant. His armed forces will rise up to desecrate the temple fortress and will abolish the daily sacrifice. Then they will set up the abomination that causes desolation. With flattery, he will corrupt those who have violated the covenant. But the people who knew their God will firmly resist him. Those who are wise will instruct many, though for a time they will fall by the sword or be burned or captured or plundered. When they fall, they will receive a little help and many who are not sincere will join them. Some of the wise will stumble so that they may be refined, purified and made spotless until the time of the end, for it will still come at the appointed time. The king will do as he pleases. He will exalt and magnify himself above every god and will say unheard of things against the god of gods. He will be successful until the time of wrath is completed, for what has been determined must take place. He will show no regard for the gods of his ancestors or for the one desired by women, nor will he regard any god, but will exalt himself above them all. 
Instead of them, he will honour a god of fortresses, a god unknown to his ancestors. He will honour with gold and silver, with precious stones and costly gifts. He will attack the mightiest fortresses with the help of a foreign god and will greatly honour those who acknowledge him. He will make them rulers over many people and will distribute the land at a price. At the time of the end, the king of the south will engage him in battle and the king of the north will storm out against him with chariots and cavalry and a great fleet of ships. He will invade many countries and sweep through them like a flood. He will also invade the beautiful land. Many countries will fall, but Edom, Moab and the leaders of Ammon will be delivered from his hand. He will extend his power over many countries. Egypt will not escape. He will gain control of the treasures of gold and silver and all the riches of Egypt, with the Libyans and the Cushites in submission. But reports from the east and the north will alarm him, and he will set out in a great rage to destroy and annihilate many. He will pitch his royal tents between the seas at the beautiful holy mountain. Yet he will come to his end, and no one will help him. I think we better pray. Father God, we know your word is you speaking to us, is you revealing Jesus to us. We pray that you would do that tonight through what is a, uh, a potentially tricky passage. We, we pray that you would speak to us, speak into our hearts and minds so that we are changed because of your words this evening. In Jesus' name and in your spirit's power we pray. Amen. Skip worship and pray for the lionesses, says the Church of England, was the headline in the Times on Friday. I don't know if you uh, saw it or, or heard about that. Um, let's hope it was a misrepresented statement from the Bishop of Derby. Uh, but either way, it, it's good to be worshipping together tonight, uh, as you were this morning. Um, but now we have the added bonus of knowing what the score is, or was, and, and we'll move on. Uh, now, football is, is definitely not more important than church, uh, and Stephen was reminding us of that uh, earlier. Um, but there is something about football, isn't there, that, that draws people together. Um, and, uh, and that means that the World Cup, and it has done this over the years, despite uh, many differences in our country, so often sort of uh, brings a country together in some small way. Um, I don't know if you saw, a few weeks back, there were reports of possible extraterrestrial life. Uh, uh, they were unfounded. Um, sorry if that was a spoiler. Uh, but uh, if we were to discover uh, life on other planets, then starting an interplanetary World Cup, or Cup, uh, would be the way, I suppose, to draw our country together and the Earth together and to put an end to war. And that is how you link the World Cup to Daniel 11. Because, of course, that's what Daniel 11 is about. Sorry if that's clickbait. It's not about interplanetary football, but it is about war. A war uh, in, in the Middle East uh, uh, that lasts not just a few months, but generations. And actually, the struggles and battles prophesied in Daniel 11 stand like a, a template, like a pattern for all of time. And to a certain extent, it can explain 
every war, every conflict there's ever been. So we're going to dive in. It's worth having your Bibles open uh, on page uh, 897, uh, Daniel 11. And uh, there you will see uh, uh, not only a chapter that Nick has been exceedingly clever and well-planned in palming off onto a visiting speaker, (laughs) but also a, a complex description of warring kings of the north and of the south. And uh, as a diligent visiting preacher, uh, the first thing that I did to prepare this uh, uh, was that I read the text and then I I worked with commentaries and history books to try and work out which kings and which armies and which nations are in view here uh, in in this prophecy in Daniel 11. I distilled my research uh, into this timeline. Uh, It took me a couple of hours to uh, to read through all that and to try and distill it into a a somewhat digestible uh, form. And then I took a break, uh, and while I had a coffee, I listened, uh, or I started listening to a talk by someone else on Daniel 11, much more experienced than me, uh, and I'd like to quote their opening paragraph, because I think you'll find it as useful as I would have found it a couple of hours before I started my prep. Uh, And he said this, uh, and yes, if we're prepared to go outside the Bible and look at the encyclopedias and the history books, we can identify every little uh, chapter and all the details in this chapter. But do we need to? Well, you'll be relieved to hear the answer's no. And I pressed pause. Do we need to? Well, I did. Uh, and it's interesting, and you're welcome to have a chat afterwards and look at my findings, or, or even just look up in a commentary or online. Uh, it, they're fairly readily available. But he's absolutely right. Is that what's central here? No, because the Bible is written for ordinary Christians like us, down through the ages. And if we needed to go outside the Bible, then we'd be saying that without access to all that extra uh, resource, then uh, we wouldn't be able to understand the message of Daniel 11. However interesting some of this might be, and some of it will make it in, uh, actually the Bible is a very simple message written to Christians like us in local churches, around the world, down through history. So rather than get lost in details, uh, we're going to pick out just three things. Um, I don't normally do three-point sermons, but uh, if you're making notes, there's a space on the order of service, and there will be three uh, main things. And the first uh, thing from Daniel 11, the first lesson, the first theme, is the nations will fall. That's the first teaching point that we're going to look at from Daniel 11. The nations will fall. If there's one thing that we can be sure about in this world, it's that empires and the systems that look like they will last forever are actually as fragile as a house of cards. Ideologies, philosophies, uh, regimes that looked unstoppable in their time, yet each one falls and is replaced. And so here in Daniel 11, as uh, the prophet is told what will face his people in the centuries ahead, the hallmark of these powers is their instability, if you like. They will come to an end. Look down at at chapter 11, verse 2. It says this, Now then, I tell you the truth. Three more kings will arise in Persia, and then a fourth who will be far richer than all the others. When he has gained power by his wealth, he will stir up everyone against the kingdom of Greece, Then a mighty king will arise who will rule with great power and do as he pleases. 
when I first read this, I was fully in detective mode, trying to uh, look at who these different kings were and and, uh, what was being uh, talked about. And I thought, that rings a bell. A mighty king. I'm sure there's a prophecy in the Old Testament, or or maybe it's a psalm or something. There's going to be a mighty king. So enemies, beware. And it was at that point I realized I was quoting the Lion King song. (laughs) It's not about Simba uh, here in Daniel 11. It's actually about Alexander the Great, described as the mighty king, as far as we can tell, as far as the history books suggest. So uh, uh, Alexander the Great's mighty empire stretched from Macedonia to India. Uh, So vast was his kingdom uh, that Alexander the Great is supposed to have wept that there were no more places left for him to conquer. And when he died, his empire didn't even go to his descendants but it was parceled out among four generals, just as these verses described at the start of Daniel 11. What's the the basic message? That the kingdoms of earth are destined to fall. There may be alliances for a time, like the marriage alliances we we read about in verses 6 and 17, but behind them all are plots and schemes that guarantee their failure. You can see it in verse 25 in chapter 11. Uh, With a large army, he will stir up his strength and courage against the king of the south. The king of the south will wage war uh, with a large and very powerful army, but he will not be able to stand because of the plots devised against him. These earthly kingdoms are, are squabbling, are warring, plotting and scheming against each other. And that is the hallmark that is the guarantee that they will collapse. Remember, Jesus said, a kingdom divided itself against itself cannot stand. Kingdoms of this world cannot stand in that sense. So we shouldn't be surprised when the political landscape suddenly shifts or, or when the ground underneath us seems to shake, when there's no uh, security, when markets tumble, uh, when there's no stability There is no security in in the kingdoms and systems of this present world. One moment they look rock solid, and then there's a coup or a financial crash or a referendum, and all the pieces get thrown into the air. But straddling them all, Daniel has been showing us again and again through this series, is the kingdom of Jesus, the Son of Man. That's where the security is. How can God's people live as strangers in a pagan culture? How can we live as uh, God's people in our world? Daniel shows us how to outlive regime after regime, crisis after crisis. We belong to another kingdom. A kingdom that cannot be shaken. A kingdom that will last forever. The kingdom of Jesus, the Son of Man, and history is his. That's our first lesson from Daniel 11. That's our first takeaway. As you see the ebbs and flows of power in our world, we're reminded the nations will fall. They will come to an end. But, lesson two, it's the church that's in focus. The nations will fall, but it's the church that's in focus. The great story of history is the story of the church. 
Have you ever wondered why uh, when you read the Bible uh, you don't see all the famous people being mentioned? Julius Caesar, Aristotle, the Emperor Chin, Plato, they never get mentioned. uh, But instead we get a book full of nobodies in, in one sense. We get an Iraqi nomad called Abraham. We get a Canaanite prostitute called Rahab. We get a, a Amos, the shepherd. We get some fishermen and tax collectors in the New Testament. We get Lydia, a European businesswoman. We get a tent maker called Paul. Uh, people the world has never heard of. And the Bible says these are the people we should pay attention to. This is the real story. It's the same when we think about the church and the nations. This interlude in Daniel 11, which seems to focus on the warring nations, is is a footnote in God's purposes for his people, for the church. He doesn't even name the kingdoms in Daniel 11. It's just the north and the south. But north and south of what? Of where? Well, we can see in verse 16, the invader will do as he pleases. No one will be able to stand against him. He will establish himself in the beautiful land. He's talking about the promised land. North and south of the nations struggling against each other, just as Stephen said at the start, but in view is those people in the middle, the God's people in the middle of this war. It's God's church that's in focus. Many empires and systems have tried to destroy the church down through the ages. Babylon is is just one of them. Assyria, Greece, Rome, other religions, other ideologies, secularism, all have failed or are destined to fail while the church continues to grow. The church will not fail. The church will not fall. Don't mishear me. Our denomination may We don't know the future of the Church of England. And we need to contend for it so that it's built on the foundation of Christ. Churches may fail, denominations may fall, but the church, the worldwide church, throughout history, past, present and future, the body of Christ will stand and endure. We shouldn't lose our nerve in uh, uh, our culture as our culture tries to marginalise the Christian faith. That's normal Christian life. That's how it's always been. Should it worry us? Not at all. Because the church is the focus of God's purposes in his world. Tim uh, said it last week uh, as he spoke on on Daniel 10. And by the way, it's the the same angel uh, that he was talking about that that leads us into Daniel 11 speaking. But Tim said it last week... um, Uh, You may uh, have heard if you were here or or if you're watching online, uh, Tim said this, the Lord is God over every nation and is working his purposes out for his glory, for his kingdom and for the good of us, his children. And so through his care for his people uh, and here specifically for Daniel and his people then, uh, God warns uh, Daniel that the Jewish church will be a casualty in these struggles. There will be persecution. But through it all, the church is at the centre of uh, God's gaze, as God's purposes. It's not the, the government or the politicians or the lawmakers or the multinationals. It's not the pressures, pressure groups or dynasties that rule history. It's the local church. 
God's eyes fixed on his precious people. God's eyes fixed on you, Bishop Hannington. And on your ministry in this parish that he's put you in. And yes, there are big things happening in the C of E and in our country and in our world. And yes, we have a part to play in those things. But the nations will fall. And it's the church that's in focus. The nations will fall. It's the church that's in focus. There's a battle that's unseen. We've already seen last week uh, that Daniel 10, 11, and 12 sort of take the lid off the world and we see what is usually hidden from sight. And we want to be a bit cautious. We don't want to uh, find angels and demons around every corner, but at the same time, we can't dismiss them. And Paul says our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world and the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. And in chapter 11, we see that in the kings of the north and south. You see, they're they're spoken of as individuals. The king of the north did this. The king of the south did this. Uh, But uh, this is taking in a a timescale of centuries. They're spoken of as individuals, but they seem to persist through generations. These two are spiritual rulers standing behind the events of world history as the nations are struggling for supremacy, and through it all, it's the church that is their target. The nations will fall. It's the church that's in focus. There's a battle that is unseen. This isn't a fourth point I'm sneaking in, but it's Christ that writes history. Christ is the Lord of history. Others will oppose the church, empires, kingdoms, ideologies, powers and authorities. But Jesus says, don't be surprised. Expect it. It's this template. The nations will fall. It's the church that's in focus. There's a battle that's unseen. But it's Christ who writes history. If we pay attention only to the headlines, uh, as the years go on uh, that we read in newspapers or see online, It looks like it's empires and uh, uh, systems that are shaping history, whether political, uh, cultural, or financial. And we might find ourselves shaken. Or we might despair as we read the end of Daniel 11 and and we see this sort of antichrist figure uh, because these powers are beyond our control that are warring. But read Daniel 11 carefully as we did earlier, and we see that it's Jesus, the Son of Man, who we saw in chapter uh, 7 back in, 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 towards the start of Daniel, the one with all authority and sovereign power, and it's him who writes the pages of history. And throughout the book of Daniel, the message comes again and again. It's Christ who raises up and humbles. He raises times and seasons. He sets up kings and deposes them. Here in chapter 11, the powers of the world that battle each other and oppress the church, they rule only by permission and only for a time. Did you notice that phrase? Uh, We get it in verse 24. He will plot the overthrow of fortresses, but only for a time. Time. 
Verse 27, the two kings with their hearts bent on evil will sit at the same table and lie to each other, but to no avail because an end will still come at the appointed time. Verse 33, those who are wise will instruct many, though for a time they will fall. Verse 35, some of the wise will stumble so that they may be refined, purified, and made spotless until the time of the end, for it will still come at the appointed time. It's Jesus on the throne who sets the time for these things, who raises up one and puts down another. It's him who writes the story of history in whose hands we are safe. What a comfort that would be to the generations after Daniel as they read God's word, as they read of the terrible events that were still awaiting them, prophesied in this chapter. As testing as the days were for them, things had not got out of control. Jesus was still on the throne, the Son of Man. What a comfort it is for us as we see things happening on the world stage, in our country, in our church. Jesus has not left the throne. And as you go on next week, I I imagine, to Daniel 12. He alone in Daniel 12 and Revelation 5 holds the scroll of history and can interpret it. He alone can write in the book. He is both the writer and the central character of all of history. So let's not lose our confidence. Even as we see a chapter which is confusing, let's see those things. Let's be reminded the nations, whatever it seems like, will fall. The church is at the center of God's focus. There is a battle that's unseen, but it's Christ who writes history. And as we do, let's pray to the one who is in charge on the throne. Lord Jesus Christ, King of kings and Lord of lords, we bow before you as ruler and writer of all of history. And we thank you for this window, this reminder that nations will rise and fall but you will reign forever and your eyes are fixed on your people, the church. Build us up and send us out in the power of your spirit to live and work to your praise and glory. In Jesus' name, amen.